Luke Waters was born in Ireland and had dreams of following in his grandfather's and brother's footsteps by joining that country's police force. Waters did fulfill his dream of becoming a cop only in New York City. He spent two decades with the NYPD. Waters details his experiences in a new memoir called NYPD Green, an Irish-born detective's 20 years on the mean streets of New York. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Waters is our guest on today's show. Luke, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. Now, you retired from the NYPD in 2013, right? Just a few years ago. Yes. What, if anything, do you miss about being on the force? I suppose the big thing I miss, and I think everybody would say the same, is the people. Both, I spent most of my career in the Bronx. I do miss the people of the Bronx, but most importantly, I miss the people I worked with. They were, to me, truly the best detectives you could ever work with in the world. You spent most of your career in the Bronx, but you did not pick up the Bronx accent. You did not lose the Irish accent. Uh, you are what you are. I'm born Irish. I'm from Ireland. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of my heritage, like everybody's proud of their heritage. And I'm Irish, and I, I kept my accent, I suppose. Where in Ireland are you from? I'm from a town called Finglas, which is on the north side of Dublin. It would be considered a disadvantaged area of Dublin, just like the South Bronx. Is that right? Yes. How big of a town is it? Finglas has a population condensed to about 80,000, which is very big for a city of the size of Dublin compared to New York City. When did you come to New York City? I first came to New York City in November of 1985. So what was that like? Here's this kid from this relatively small town in Ireland coming to great big New York City. I suppose, George, to understand what it was like as an emigrant coming to New York City first, I think you need to understand where I first came from. And I grew up in the 70s and the early 80s in Dublin City. And for the people that don't remember them times, they were very tough economic times for us. Ireland was riddled with a recession in both the 70s and the 80s. And not just my family, but nobody had nothing. Unemployment was 25%, which was huge. Crime, I mean, crime just riddled the entire country. Our own house where we grew up in the disadvantaged area I just spoke about, that was burglarized. Hmm. My father owned a shop in Dublin City. Uh, They would call, a shop here would be like a bodega in the South Bronx. He himself was not just robbed multiple times, but he was shot at. He made the front page of the Evening Herald newspaper the following day in 1979. And with all this came the troubles of Northern Ireland. And the way I grew up, we had the bombs of 1974 in Dublin City, where there was a couple of dozen people killed, as young as five months old, as old as 80 years of age, all innocent victims, to which I couldn't understand at the time. Mm -hmm. And there was hundreds of people injured, and some of those people that were injured were personal friends of ours from the street we grew up on. So I suppose with all of this, this is what forced us us to emigrate from Ireland, because we had nothing. So to answer your question, when I first came to New York City, the very, very first day, and I remember this day very, very vividly, I remember Just before the plane touched down at JFK, the pilot said, put your watches back five hours to local time. But as soon as I come out of the airport and I see these huge big cars 
everyone's smiling, everyone has a mission. I'm on the Long Island Expressway heading towards the Midtown Tunnel. I'm looking up at New York City like this giant big Christmas tree, like mm-hmm. all the lights hanging off it. And I'm sitting in this traffic jam. And to me, even the traffic jam looked very glamorous looking. But to me, it was a great feeling. It was a positive feeling. It was just, it was a, it was a great feeling as an immigrant to be in a city where I sort of, I was surrounded by all these positive people, even though they were all rushing like in this rat race trying to get to work, but they were going somewhere because where I'd come from, we weren't in that rush. We weren't going anywhere like this. And I knew that day, George, there was no going back. You spent your first three years here in New York City as an illegal immigrant. Yeah, I, I use the term undocumented, George, mm-hmm. because under the federal statute, you know, to become an illegal alien, you have to be forced to be arrested and then deported. And legally, the police can't stop you and question your status. Even though I was here on an overstay, an extended holiday visa, and for to be deported, it would if I had been stopped for some particular reason, mm-hmm. it, it would be what's known as a civil matter, not a criminal matter. And it's voluntary deportation. It's voluntary leaving the country. That's what it is. So I call it an undocumented alien, not a legal alien. Today, undocumented immigrants here in New York City are very fearful of being deported. Was that an issue for you when you were living in New York City without documentation? I think you always looked over your shoulder, whether it was the 80s or today. But I think what has happened since September, September 11th has changed the world, as everybody knows it. And I think we didn't look over our shoulder as much in the 80s compared to today. Like, I don't advise people to come to the United States today without a green card because it's not, it is not the same place, as we all know that. It's not the same place as it was back in the 80s. So I think back in the 80s, it was more slack would be the way to put it because I did enter and leave the country multiple times. I don't think anybody questioned me too much. But today, you can't enter and leave the country if you want to do what I did back in the 80s. How did you support yourself when you first got here to New York City? Oh, like like all Irish people, we worked in either the bars, restaurants, or construction. <laughs> I think that was the job of Chase. And we were very grateful and very, very happy back then to have them jobs. So what path set you down the road to becoming a New York City police officer? I, I got lucky in the 80s with the Donnelly visa. That's how I obtained my green card and became a U.S. citizen. But Is that my, a lottery? It was the lottery. The Donnelly visa and the Morrison visas were the lotteries. Mm-hmm. I was one of the very first group in the Donnelly in 1988, I believe it was. But since childhood, my dream was to become a cop. I came from a family of police. And even my immediate uh, family today are still active members of Angarda Siakana, the Irish Police Department. I have plenty of cousins, uncles, aunts, And if you actually look in my book, NYPD Green, there's some photographs. And one of the photographs is one of my grandfathers, who was one of the first police officers in Ireland in the 1920s. Wow. And it shows an actual picture of him from shoe to head of exactly the uniform, everything, what he looked like, what the police officers looked like back then. So I came from that tradition of police, and my dream was to become a police officer. And to get into the NYPD, that was just, it was outstanding for me. When you first joined the force, you were assigned to Sutton Place in Manhattan, a far cry from where you then ended up in the South Bronx, right? Do you know what the best way to describe it is? It's like two different police departments. 
I consider like the cops in Manhattan to be like carpenters and we're the plumbers in the Bronx. <laughs> and, you know, it's the same in any city, George. It's not just New York City. It's the same where I grew up. Obviously, if some old lady got robbed at night pint in something place, I think every single cop in the south of Manhattan would be down there. Whereas in the Bronx, you know, somebody throws a hand grenade in Southern Boulevard, which they have when I was there, I don't think that caught the eyes of attention downtown. So it, they're two different areas. They're like two different police departments is the way I describe it. While you were on Sutton Place, you had a run-in with an old woman, speaking of old women, yeah, Mrs. Hines of Hines Ketchup fame. Yes. Tell us that story. Well, I'll never forget that story. <laughs> It'll live with me till death. I was, I described the uh, post as 10 Downing Street in England where you're like a security officer standing in front of this building. But I had gone to roll call in the 17th precinct, which was my first precinct when I left the uh, police academy. And on this particular day, my assignment was to stand in front of the United Nations Ambassador's Residence right on the corner of 57th Street in Sutton Place. But we'd been warned that some of the most richest and the most powerful people in the entire world live on this corner. People like Sean Connery, Jean Kennedy Smith, and, and Princess Margaret from England had actually just left before I got there. Now, I was aware of this, but I'm standing there completely bored to tears, saying to myself, this isn't what I signed up to do in the police academy. I wanted to be a real cop out in Brooklyn or the Bronx. And all of a sudden, this lady walked past me, very, very well-dressed, very well-spoken, and just said, pardon me, officer. And I just looked and I said, yes, ma'am, how can I help you? And she said, there's a dog in the park. Now, I described this park no bigger than any intersection in New York City. And I looked over my shoulder and I see this little bit of white fluff hopping around. It wasn't a rat wire or a pit bull mm-hmm. or anything like that. And I just said, you're correct, ma'am. And she says, well, there's a sign on the wall, on the gate, saying, no dogs allowed. Now, to me, you know, I'm trying to make the best of a bad situation. I don't see any reason to take any police action here. Uh-huh. And I just simply said to her, maybe the dog can't read the sign. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> you know, I'm not going over to this poor older old lady. But... I would estimate about 20, 25 minutes went past and I could hear the siren of a police car getting closer to me. And I'm listening to the radio like, is there a bank robbery? What's going on? And all of a sudden, it's one of my sergeants pulled right up in front of me. And he says, Waters, get in the car. And I was relieved by the other person, the other officer in the car. And he just said to me, I don't know what you did. I don't know what's wrong, but you're in some serious trouble. Huh? Now, I initially thought it was a prank. That was my initial thought. And because, you know, cops do that. They do this in any job. But when we were flying back to the precinct, red lights, sirens, going through intersections, and that's a no-no in the police department. I knew something was wrong. And I think in the back of my head, I said, did they catch up with the emigration status? Huh. That's what was on my mind. But very quickly, we got to the precinct, and I got to the commander's office. And as soon as I walked in, he slammed the door, and he put his finger in my mouth shouting at me who the hell do you think you are screaming at Mrs. Hines ketchup <laughs> queen of the world the dog can't read the sign I'm like you know for a moment I was relieved but at the same time I knew this was serious and at that time they were looking for a volunteer to transfer to the Manhattan South Task Force nobody wanted to go so obviously I got that piece of paper saying I was transferred but 
I think from there my career sort of took off on the road I wanted to take off because I wanted to be a cop and fight crime. And the 17 precinct is a great precinct, but I don't think it's that type of precinct where you send rookies or recruits. Mm -hmm. They don't really learn too much there, like you would in the Bronx or Brooklyn or other parts of Manhattan. While in the South Bronx, you were a homicide detective, right? Yes, I spent most of my life in as a detective, really. The, the majority of my career was a detective in Bronx homicide. And for me, as a child, I mean, my idol was Kojak, for, if you remember Kojak. Tele Savalas, yes, I mean, Kojak, the television show. <laughs> but I, I loved to be a homicide. My ultimate dream was to be a homicide detective. And I quickly got into Bronx homicide. And I spent the majority of my career in, in, in the office, and I absolutely loved every second of it. What did you love about being a homicide detective in the South Bronx? Well, we actually had the whole Bronx. We covered the entire Bronx, including Fordham right here, um, although I never did investigate a homicide on Fordham, <laughs> thank God. Um, what I loved about it most was, obviously, the people. They were the sharpest and the best detectives you could work with. Uh, even the commander, and he's still the commander today, Lieutenant O'Toole. Um, I, I call him the sharpest knife in the drawer. The intelligence, not just he has, but all his commanders above him. And the best thing I think I got out of it was the challenge to investigate the ultimate crime. And every homicide was different. And when you put a closure to this, it was something that you felt good you really did in your heart. Because even though I know homicide is homicide... All these cases are all different. There's a different way of approaching them and attacking them all. And then when you have the perpetrator ID'd and the hunt, we call it the hunt, the hunt is on to get them. Now, it doesn't matter where they go in the world. We, we get them. I mean, I think Bronx homicide of all homicide squads in the city have the biggest clearance rate of all, all the cases combined all around the city. But we always get them. And to be a part of that hunt, it's a challenge about outsmarting the perpetrator. Because some of these guys are very slick, they're very clever. And when you have the skill, the intelligence, and the people behind you all working together, we always win. This is Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Today we're talking with Luke Waters. He's the author of a new memoir called NYPD Green, an Irish-born detective's 20 years on the mean streets of New York. What for you has been your most memorable case? Oh, God. There was a lot of memorable cases. I think, you know, some of the funny ones probably to get at was we had a defendant, Latte Whitley was his name. He went out and robbed the bodega on Willis Avenue in the South Bronx. And when he, when he robbed this bodega, he had a 38 Saturday night special with him. When he robbed it, he wasn't just stoned. He was as drunk as could be. And he went into the bodega at, it was actually 362 Willis Avenue off the top of my head. When he went in and robbed the place, when he got the cash, as he was walking out, he was telling everyone not to move. And he slammed his elbow off the door and the gun went off. And he shot himself in the side of the head. (laughs) But he took a good gash out of the side of his head and he managed to flee from Willis Avenue to his apartment. With the gunshot to his head. Well... Thank God, because when we arrived, all we had to do was follow the blood trail. Yeah. And when we found him in his closet <laughs> with a towel wrapped around his head and the gun underneath the couch, it, w- it was funny to an extent because no one innocent got hurt. But I think the funniest part about it was we decided not to prosecute him in the Bronx. Really? Why is that? 
Well, you know, you could, it's possible you could get jurors that might sympathise because he has a gunshot wound to his head. And even if convicted, he could probably only do a few years. So we, we uh, what we call, trigger-locked him. It's a federal programme. And we prosecuted him, prosecuted him in federal court with the United States Attorney's Office. And for me, I was at a sentencing after he was convicted by Judge Casey, who was a blind judge in the U.S. courthouse. And I've never seen a perpetrator, when a judge slammed a hammer and sentenced him to 32 years, I've never seen a perpetrator faint in hmm. a courtroom. And I just sat there looking at him like... That's it. But that's that to me was justice. It's a case I probably never will forget. You uh, mentioned trigger lock, and you write in the book that trigger lock was one of the most effective tools you ever used. That's correct, and I'm glad you brought that up. Like, the mayor right now is now taking a very, very proactive approach to guns, and he has the right approach. But when I was a detective, we had this program called Trigger Lock, and what Trigger Lock was... I have a chapter called U.S. Code 18 in the book, which talks greatly about this case. Trigger lock is when somebody's arrested with possession of a gun or usury of a gun, only in the Bronx County. We only worked in the Bronx County. Rather than prosecute them in state court, where the sentence, if, if convicted, the sentences wouldn't be the same as federal court. So what we would do is take them cases out of the Bronx go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecute them there. And as I said, Latte Whitley was trigger-locked. That's a typical example. He would have probably got a few months if he had been indicted in the Bronx. But then he got 32 years at the end of the day. And by that, how effective this program is, Latte Whitley was a five-time career felon, all felonies that we knew of, that he was convicted of. And according to the people on Willis Avenue... It was a weekly event that he would go rob people with handguns. So this is a way of saving crime. This program is very effective, and it's something similar to what the mayor is doing today, and we do need programs like this. And just to add one other case in that chapter, we had a guy, Ferdinand Nazario, who was only arrested with possession of ammunition. Again, he was a career criminal. When I spoke to the Bronx District Attorney's Office about that particular case... I was told because he's on parole, they can only get nine days. That's the best they can do. I took that case out of the Bronx County, brought it to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I got a conviction of a life sentence. Mm -hmm. But the case was appealed, and it was reduced to eight, eight years because of ammunition. But again, his career criminal has been taken off the road. and not, it, is, it is reducing crime, and it's saving our kids from being shot or killed. The NYPD recently revamped its training program that happened in the wake of the chokehold death of Eric Garner, an unarmed black man on Staten Island. It's all part of an effort to improve police-community relations. What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, you know, I think the best thing, and not just the NYPD, all police departments, training is very important. And even when I, I mean, I spent 20 full years just in the police department. We were always being trained. And revamping, changing things and retraining, I support all that. Absolutely. I'm 100% for it because the more training you have, the better the police officer is. And I fully support that. When it comes to your training, you write that the real highlight of the academy was the emergency vehicle operators course. I had no idea about this, but it sounds like loads of fun. So tell us about it. Well, 
I think what I was trying to bring out in the book was, you know, when you go to the police academy, we're, we're a paramilitary organization, and it's no different than boot camp. You know, you're not going in to party your brains out here. This isn't college. This is, this is serious stuff. And everything I did was very serious. You know, you're told to stand the position of attention. You stay there. Don't open your mouth. You don't answer back. And I felt in going into the police academy that I was all excited about getting my gun, like most cops, and going to the firearms range. But I very quickly learned on the first day, there's no messing around here. This is serious stuff. It's no joke. And everywhere I went was very, very serious. But when we went to the uh, driver's training course, it was on an old airstrip, the Flight Benefield. It's an old military camp. And the training is done on the old um, airstrips, the runways. And when I got into the car, that was the first time in the four months I was in the academy that we had a lot of fun, where I could put my foot down, drive as fast as I could in around all these cones. And I was there for a few days, and it was the most enjoyment I had in the academy, whereas that's not what I expected. I was hoping for somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But that was the fun part of the police academy for me. You write in the book about Abner Loima a Haitian immigrant who was tortured by police officers in a Brooklyn police station back in 1997. Did you at first believe the officers who said that they had nothing to do with his injuries? Absolutely. In the very beginning, when they said that Justin Volpe and Chuck Schwartz, if I remember correctly, they said that he was accused of this crime. In my mind, when I heard and learned of what the injuries were, I said to myself, there's no way a human being could do this to another human being, let alone a New York City police officer. And when I learned, this was very quick, this all happened very quick, it unfolded very quickly, and he pled guilty very, very quickly. And when Justin Volpe, Volpe uh, pled guilty, my heart nearly stopped and it bled for Abner Louima because I really seriously did not believe that, a, not a human being, but a cop, Anyone could cause these injuries. How could, what's in your mind? What could you be even thinking of to do something like this? It was horrific. But what upset me the most at the very, very end was Justin Volpe was only sentenced to 29 years, if I remember correctly. That was a disgrace. He should have got life in jail for, what the, for the crimes he did. There was absolutely no excuse, no justification. And I think 29 years... I think he got off real lightly with that sentence. Referring to the Abner Louima case, you write in the book that this wouldn't be the first time you were let down by people you would have supported through thick and thin. Who else within the NYPD has let you down, let you down over the years? Well, you know, I was a narcotics detective in uh, Washington Heights, and it was my first time in the police department because I was on, I was in narcotics. I would say we're about five years on the job when I was a narcotics detective. And I knew, like, Lieutenant McGuire, uh, John Ratchko, um, um I knew these this lieutenant and these detectives. Uh, Juan Vasquez was the other detective. I was trying to think of his name. And I knew these guys. I'm sitting the same distance I'm sitting from you. My desk is here. They're right there. And all of a sudden, one day I go to work, and they were arrested. And they've been arrested and convicted since and all sentenced to federal uh, jail time of ripping off drug dealers. And I, I felt completely let down, completely in shock with what I had not just, I hadn't witnessed them crimes, but the fact that 
I sat with these, our cup of coffee was on the same table. And right there, that was my eye-opener, first eye-opener in the NYPD ever. How Irish is the NYPD today? How green is the NYPD blue? Well, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you said that because when I come on the academy, when I started in the academy, George, there was about 50 people from Ireland. I'm not going to name all 50 of them, but they know who they are. And unfortunately today, with the immigration laws, we are losing our heritage here, not just in the police department, but in America. And that is sad because it's very important for every culture to keep up their culture in the United States. And the NYPD, it is the most diverse police department in the world, if you ask me. Not because I was in it. These are facts. But we are losing our Irish heritage. We are. And we need to get the Irish back into America. We need to get the Irish back into the police department. And even within the military and the fire department. And you take the United States, not going political here or anything like that, but you take the United States military. Of all the wars ever fought, in the United States, with the United States. The number one ethnic group to fight and die for this country was Irish. And I'm trying to send a message here to the United, to the people of the United States. This is my story as an immigrant. I was a successful immigrant here, and I would hope that some politician might look at my story and say, you know what, we have 50,000 undocumented Irish in America today. They're no different than I am or you are, George, or any politician in this country. They deserve the same chance I had. That all they want to do is pay their taxes, they want to study, they want to serve, and they want to be able to go home when there's funerals, there's weddings. And that's all they want to do. And they all work. And they deserve the same opportunity, the same chance. And we need them and we need more of them. Very, very important we get them into this country. Is this why you wrote this book? What you're saying right now, is that the reason? This was, for me, it was one of the biggest reasons I would love to fight for emigration reform within the country. It is a hot topic here in America, especially this year with the election. Um, but, you know, I was sick and tired throughout the years, George, because I, I am a very lucky person. I'm, I, I say that very, very freely. I don't make no bone about that. I got lucky with a green card, a passport, and achieving my dream. But for me, it was disgraceful throughout the years having to sit in bars at 4, 5 o'clock in the morning with personal friends who could not go home because their father, their mother died. And only lately, I was in County Cavan in Ireland at a funeral, and there was tears in my eyes, George. On the funeral, on the altar, was Skype. The lady that died only had one daughter, and the Skype was to her daughter so she could listen live to her mum's funeral in Cavan while she was in New York. She couldn't go home for the funeral. That's disgraceful, George. It's terrible. We need to reform emigration here and I, I can't fight for the whole world but just for our people there's 50,000 undocumented they all work and yet they want to pay their taxes and according to the revenue of the United States of America just me personally I've given over a million dollars in taxes and has 50,000 that want to do the same it's a nice chunk of money for America and they want to give it to you but I'm hoping that someone does read the book and understand what it's like to be an immigrant and they do do something for our people. So now that you're no longer on the force and you look at the force, how would you revamp the NYPD if you had the opportunity to? I don't think I would change too much. What I would like to see more, if I was to revamp anything, um, you know, Bill Bratton was the police commissioner when I was a cop. 
He had what was called back then park, walk and talk. You had to park your car, you had to walk and talk with the community. And I'm all for community policing. I think the relationship between the community and the policing should be a lot stronger than it is today. It's very, very important. So I think, you know, more community policing to me. And, you know, we've, we've touched on training earlier. You know, you can never get enough training. And the NYPD, they're probably, of all police departments I know, they're constantly training. There's always, if you, right now, if you call them, what's, what training is going on within the NYPD, they could pick a borough and tell you what's going on in every borough. But more training makes a better cop. And probably just those couple of things. But believe me, George, I, I can sit here and I can, not that I'm very proud to say I was with the NYPD, but I've traveled the world. I've seen a lot of different police departments. I've been to Australia, New Zealand, all around Europe, all around the United States with the NYPD. And I'm going to tell you, the NYPD, not that it's the most diverse police department, it is the best police department in the world. There's absolutely no question about it. The book is NYPD Green. Luke Waters, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. NYPD Green is published by Touchstone. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of the show at any time on our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.